Welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of Herald Scotland from Monday 28th October to Friday 1st of November 2019 read by volunteers at Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our Bishop Briggs studio. The headlines in part one. Ian Blackford says Scottish independence is an insurance policy on Brexit. Charlie Nicholas says Neil Lennon has made Celtic better than they were under Brendan Rodgers. Developer of old SSEB building at Cathcart reveals luxury apartment sales figures. Ten tips on how to survive a Christmas general election. Union's future looks bleak as its foundations are undermined. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Ian Blackford says Scottish independence is an insurance policy on Brexit. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 29th of October 2019. Ian Blackford has said he does not accept that a general election could return a Conservative majority and a no-deal Brexit. Ian Blackford said he wants Boris Johnson to be defeated and called on opposition parties to take on the Brexiteers. He said Scotland has the insurance policy of being able to have a referendum on Scottish independence, so staying in Europe. Speaking on BBC Scotland's Good Morning Scotland radio programme, he initially refused to directly answer questions on whether an early general election could return the Tories to power and lead to the UK leaving the EU without a deal. Asked if what he was trying to stop with the general election could be the outcome of it, he said, I don't accept that. He added, in a situation that this Prime Minister said he was going to do or die, die in a ditch if he didn't deliver Brexit on October the 31st, that's not happening this week. This is a Prime Minister that has failed to deliver. It's a Prime Minister that doesn't have a majority in Parliament. He can't do what he wants to do. We've got to make sure that this now goes back to the people and the people recognise that what the Prime Minister wants to do is damaging economically, socially and culturally. It's up to the Labour Party and others in England and Wales to do their job in defeating the Conservatives. We will do that in Scotland. But the simple fact remains that we cannot sit back and allow this Prime Minister to take us out of Europe. In Scotland, we have got that alternative, if the UK is determined to do that, that we have got that insurance policy of being able to have a referendum on independence and making sure that we stay in Europe. He added, we want to see Boris Johnson defeated and out of number 10. Mr Johnson is expected to ask MPs to vote for an early general election for the fourth time in a vote on the Commons on Tuesday for a December 12th ballot. On Monday, he failed to get the two-thirds majority needed to secure an election under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act 
but is expected to publish a bill requiring a simple majority to pass. The SNP and Liberal Democrats support an election on December the 9th, believing it could prevent the withdrawal agreement bill being passed. Mr Blackford would not reveal how the party planned to vote on December the 12th election, saying he would wait and see what's in the bill. Speaking on the same programme, Conservative MP Luke Graham said, I'm not sure why it has to be on the 9th and not on the 12th. He added he would not support the SNP and Lib Dem push for a December the 9th vote, saying he believes people would much rather we had a few extra days to get the withdrawal bill through. Article from Herald Scotland, Tuesday 29th of October 2019, Sport. Charlie Nicholas says Neil Lennon has made Celtic better than they were under Brendan Rodgers. By Paige Beresford, multimedia reporter. Former Celtic striker Charlie Nicholas has said that Celtic are a better team under Neil Lennon than they were under Brendan Rodgers. The Sky Pundit watched the Hoops' resounding 4-0 win against Aberdeen at the weekend and was left impressed by the performance of Lennon's side. Celtic currently sit at the top of the Premiership as well as their Europa League group. During his time as Celtic gaffer, Rogers saw the Scottish champions undefeated in 47 domestic games and cemented their status as the Invincibles back in the 2016-17 season and led them to win seven trophies in a row. He left Celtic in February for a move to Leicester City and Lennon returned as manager for the second time where he led the club to win a historical treble treble. In his Daily Express column, Nicholas wrote that Lennon has proved wrong those who doubted he was the man for the job after Rogers' exit. He said, Neil Lennon has taken Celtic up another level from the Brendan Rogers era. The first 45 minutes at Pitodry were as good a performance as I have seen in a long time. Yes, the squad he inherited from Rogers was superior to every other team in Scotland, but he has improved it. He has adopted the technical side of the game that Rogers built and added speed and urgency with defenders also getting involved. The hoops have strength in depth in all positions. The only player you would say is guaranteed to start every game is Odson Edward, but Lenny has options all over the rest of the pitch. There was some negativity from supporters when the Northern Irishman was appointed on a long-term basis in May, but he has wiped all of that away now. People will talk about Rogers' achievement at Parkhead and the invincible campaign that saw them go through 47 domestic games in 2016-17 without defeat, but Celtic were starting to go backwards in his final season. Rogers is a sensational coach and is proving that with Leicester City in the Premier League, but Lenny has built on those foundations at Celtic and made the team better. You're listening to The Herald, recorded on Thursday the 31st of October 2019. A business article, developer of old SSEB building at Cathcart reveals luxury apartment sales figures. An article by Ian McConnell, Group Business Editor. Luxury apartment development in the former headquarters of the South of Scotland Electricity Board, which became Scottish Power, is now 60% sold, with the final phase having been released and attracting solid demand. Developer FM Group, which was founded in 1997 by Jonathan Milne and began with the refurbishment of a single apartment in Edinburgh, 
said yesterday that only 29 of the total 73 flats made available in the first and second phases remain unsold. It has invested £40 million in the building's redevelopment. 12 of the 35 apartments in the newly released second phase of the development at Cathcart on the south side of Glasgow has been sold. Six flats from the 38-unit first phase remain available. The Cathcart House development over five floors comprises a mixture of one, two and three bedroom apartments and penthouses. Cathcart House was designed by Scottish architect Sir John James Burnett and was built by the Wallace Scott Tailoring Institute. It was completed in 1916. Plans to extend the building were launched in 1919, with this development lasting until 1922. The building was occupied by the state-owned SSEB, which became Scottish power ahead of the utilities privatisation in the early 1990s, from the 1950s. It was acquired by FM in 2017. Prices range from £173,000 to £349,000 for one to three bedroom apartments. The two bedroom penthouses are priced from £366,000. Cathcart House, which is a B-listed building, is retaining its original hallway entrance and its marble staircase with, with decorative balustrades. Robert Kroll, sales manager at FM Group, said, We're very proud to be part of the redevelopment of this iconic building. An article by Ian McConnell, Group Business Editor. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager Sophie Weldon said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot UK or phone 01283 that's 01283-790-208 or on 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. You're listening to Herald Scotland, as published on Thursday the 31st of October 2019. Opinion, Alison Rowett. Ten Tips on How to Survive a Christmas General Election, by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. Fortunately, it was written in pencil. There it is, in the diary for October the 31st, 2019, Brexit. It has had to be erased, 
like so many other things now that the Christmas general election of 2019 is upon us. Christmas is not cancelled, or not yet anyway, but the joyous events in the run-up, the nativity plays and the drinks parties, but most of the drinks parties will have to be rearranged. Do not despair, though. With the aid of ten election do's and don'ts, let us call them commandments in keeping with the season's biblical theme. We can get through this with our sanity, with our sanity clauses intact, with apologies and thanks forever to the Marx Brothers. Here goes. Do. Do set up an official and partial fact-checking service that can give you a ruling on the avalanche of claims and counterclaims coming voters' way. Yesterday's PMQs, with a row over the involvement of American firms in the NHS, was just a flavour of what is to come. At this moment, somewhere in the UK, claims have been painted in the sides of buses, and voters need to know who and what to trust. Let the official fact-checker dispense with the traditional, on the one hand, on the other hand, fuddy-duddy formalities. In this fast-moving age, a simple thumbs-up, thumbs-down will do. No appeals, no refunds, harsh but fair. Don't. Don't let us tolerate streams of political clichés masquerading as answers to specific questions. Any interview in which a politician says, let me be clear, we have always been clear, or any variety thereof, will be terminated immediately and the culprit fined. Likewise, experts back in fashion since Westminster's implosion, starting sentences with the word, so. Do feel free to be a switcher in this general election. The current Westminster Parliament has been notable for the large number of politicians, some 46 according to BBC's PM programme, who have switched sides or found themselves suddenly independent. Voters may like to follow their examples and dispense with old loyalties as they see fit. Out with Scotland, the Tories' entire election strategy depends on leopards changing their spots. In general, and due in part to Brexit creating new allegiances. A lot of soul-searching will be going on as pens hover above ballot papers. As a result of switching, this could be a fiendishly difficult election to call. Don't take Scotland for granted. That goes for all parties, but particularly the SNP, widely expected to sweep the board in Scotland. No sooner had an election date been named than some in the party were framing the general election as a mainly a way to advance independence. Not only is this a risky strategy that could repeal as many voters as it attracts, there's a whiff of arrogance about it too. Voters here want to talk about schools, the NHS, the economy and so on as much as voters in the rest of the UK. They have genuine concerns that must be heard. To assume otherwise is to believe wrongly that all is well here, save for a lack of independence. See the history of Labour in Scotland or the seats lost in the 2017 general election for further information on the perils of assuming supporters in the bag. Do be nice to, to canvassers. Yes, it's a pain in the neck to have your evening interrupted, but it's an essential part of the functioning of democracy. Information is exchanged between parties and voters, sometimes in fairly spirited terms, and pressure released. After the last three years, we could all do with some of that. Remember, too, that it is cold outside, and it takes some commitment to a cause to go out there on the knock. Not for nothing was fleece-lined clothing trending last night. Don't. On the subject of social media, it might be a good time to remind BBC journalists, and one in particular, hello Laura, to pause before they tweet, such as the number of Twitter spats they've been in lately. The latest erupted this week when the BBC's political editor wrongly said the SNP had called a rally in Glasgow this Saturday as part of gearing up for an election. In fact, the event has been organised by The National, the Herald's sister paper, and has been in the pipeline for months. Ms Koonsberg, to her credit, issued a correction. Next time for the... Next time for there surely will be one, remember it's better to be right than quick. Do hope that broadcasters in the run-up to polling day on December the 12th find ways of covering politics that prove more enlightening than the current state stale models. 
Heated debates with panels of mostly men shouting at each other or audience members shouting at them does, not, does nothing to aid anyone's understanding. Broadcasters have the upper hand in what is certain to be a campaign with more key players than usual vying for attention. Use it to insist on extended one-to-one -one interviews or follow the American example and have small panels quizzing debate participants rather than large audiences. Panels are easier to vet, thus avoiding the inevitable rows when seemingly impartial questioners turn out to be not quite as advertised. Don't forget there's life after politics. Some of it can even be fun. Remember those pre-Brexit days when politics, though often intense and high stakes, was but a mere part of life and not some all-consuming bemoth gobbling up vast amounts of time and patience. It is possible to return to those days, though it may seem hard to believe now. Foreign newspapers will eventually stop asking why the UK has taken leave of its senses. Do take the time to watch party political broadcasts. They may indeed be analogue communication in a digital age and look posit positively ancient compared to whiz-bang social media campaigning, but they are a chance for politicians to show what terrible actors they are, much to the amusement of the rest of us. And finally, don't believe that we will wake up on Friday the 13th, now there is an omen with everything settled. We could, as some fear, end up with another evenly divided commons and be right back to square one. The last Christmas election in 1923 resulted in a hung parliament and another general election less than a year later. Merry Christmas, everyone. You've been listening to Alison Rowett, 10 Tips on How to Survive a Christmas Election by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. The Herald, Monday, October the 28th. The Letters Page. Union's future looks bleak as its foundations are undermined. The machinations and self-importance of politicians associated with Brexit over a prolonged period and the uncertainties and concerns generated for the population as a result provide much food for thought. Voltaire once opined in the 18th century that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. What do we see when we now consider Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Well, most would concede we have been something less than great for some time now, even although rural Britannia still gets sung with gusto in some quarters. The future of Britain must be regarded as being on a shaky peg with Scotland, having voted 62% to remain in the European Union, effectively being ignored by Westminster during the Brexit negotiations. Moreover, recent opinion polling has shown more Scots in favour of independence. What of Northern Ireland? The DUP, hoping that Northern Ireland's position in relation to Great Britain would not be diminished by the Prime Minister's recently concluded deal with the EU, have been disappointed in spite of previous assurances and can be forgiven for feeling their Britishness has been watered down. In addition, the support for a united Ireland appears to be increasing. Many in England have already expressed the view they wish to have Brexit, even at the cost of Scotland leaving the Union, and, as day follows day, it looks more likely they may get their wish, and thus being able to stop shoveling money over Hadrian's Wall, as was once said. While the geography in that remark was less than accurate, the sentiment was perfectly clear. 
The future for Great Britain and Northern Ireland is looking increasingly uncertain and fragile, with its foundations being slowly and surely undermined. Ian W. Thompson, Lindsay. More than 60% of the population, leavers and remainers who agree to abide by the vote, has been in a state of anguish for almost four years, likely to continue due to the subversion of a parliament full of remainers, despite the agreement of 600 MPs beforehand to stand by the vote. Why? Because the basic obstacle to success was not understood. It is that the EU will not allow a deal advantageous to the UK. It set out to damage us to encourage other countries to remain. It has as good as said, you cannot leave because we must have a hard border, which it knows is impossible, and which the DUP, which wishes to be integral in every way to the UK, would never approve or support in a Commons vote. Successive Prime Ministers have been in an impossible position because of the limits of what the EU will allow. Decency from the EU disappeared with the vote to leave. Aided and abetted by the fifth column of MPs who then reneged on their promises to support the referendum result and have been subverting it ever since with one amendment after another, everyone dishonest. Holding up the process, hoping for a reversal, a morally indefensible move. They even bleat, we are acting for the good of the country. We are the Democrats here, a blatant lie. The damage will be colossal. The notion that only damage can result is a hysteria fomented by them. But it has not succeeded. People, the majority, want to see Brexit delivered. There was, with hindsight, only one possible move by the UK that could have led to a successful Brexit. Leave with no deal. Then the UK is not subject to EU rules or courts and can carve out for itself what its arrangements will be. For sure, the EU will be arriving in droves to re-establish trade because it will not do without it. Let it make the trade deals. We seek to trade with the wide world and refuse to be restricted. After nearly four years, we are well prepared. Billions have been set aside for the transition, and Michael Gove has been at the delivery for months now. We ought to be ready. William Scott Rossi Alan Fitzpatrick, Letters, October 2 thinks the 2016 Brexit referendum result should be respected by disallowing the Remain option in any second referendum. I think that would disrespect the 2016 result by suggesting it might not be repeatable in more enlightened times. A better way to respect it is to assume leavers can still cope with the competition even if they need new bus posters. Robert Canning, Bridge of Erden. Walter M. Stephen, Letters, October 23, chastises the Scottish Conservative MPs for giving parliamentary support to Brexit when their constituencies voted Remain. Frankly, 
That's what they ought to be doing, notwithstanding that the majority of them are themselves Remainers. Parliament transferred, some would say abrogated, the decision on Europe to the people by way of a referendum. Furthermore, Parliament has undertaken to implement the people's decision. For the Scottish Conservative MPs, and for that matter any other parliamentarians, to renege on such undertaking would be undemocratic. Incidentally, I voted Remain. David S.W. Williamson, Kelso. What will the media do when, if, Brexit is finally settled? I suppose there will still be the royals. Heaven help us. Malcolm Allen, Bishop Briggs. Why it is right for the Church of Scotland to sit at the same table as the big oil companies. I note the article by Ross Greer on Church of Scotland investments. Kirk must divest from fossil fuels if it is to lead society, argues MSP, The Herald, October 23. I am sure we all admire the political achievements and indeed the charisma conveyed by Mr Greer, particularly as of one so young. It does seem to me, however, that along with many of his colleagues, both within Parliament and within the Kirk, that in their determined enthusiasm to seek the high moral ground, they lose sight of reality. It may well be they arrive at their divestment concepts without the benefit of a sound knowledge of basic economics. The proposal, albeit intended as leading by example, that the Kirk divesting itself of all stocks and shares in the oil and gas industries would somehow have a profound effect on the CO2 being deposited in our atmosphere, simply does not add up. Our accrued investments in Shell, BP and France's Total, although considerable, are but a drop in the ocean, or should we say a blob on the dipstick of the financial reserves of these giant companies. Therefore, our withdrawal would have no effect whatsoever on the industry's production of oil and gas, nor indeed on our misuse or abuse of its products. In any event, our release of these stocks and shares would simply invite other corporate investors to gobble them up, and so the industry would continue unimpeded. While we remain as shareholders, along with other influential investors, we have a right to sit at the table with these companies and to bring some pressure to bear on them in respect of their very considerable research and development budgets for improving or eliminating carbon emissions. A recent science paper published by the industry reports on a proposal that redundant ocean-based wells may be converted into refineries, whereby CO2 could be extracted from the atmosphere and pumped safely into the seabed a procedure currently and naturally executed by marine flora. Further, Peter Mather, BP's UK business leader, 
has confirmed his company's commitment to seriously reducing emissions with a realistically achievable target of zero by 2050, as opposed to the impractical demands of some campaigners for this to be achieved by 2025. Shell has also announced its commitment to financing the planting of many millions of trees, sufficient, they claim, to absorb all of the carbon produced by their extracting of fossil fuels. Only the industry companies have the funding and necessary technology to execute such massive undertakings. But if we, the Kirk, retreat from our position as stakeholders, we lose the right to sit at their table and our voice from outside would simply then become as of one crying in the wilderness. Therefore, our interests will be so much better served as partners in our endeavours to correct the health of our planet. Ian Cooper, elder of Westerton Parish Church and representative on the Church of Scotland, Church and Society Council, Bearsden, Eastern Battenshire. I was angered by the tone of Alan Simpson's column, Climate Activists Have Lost the Plot to the Herald, October 24. He says the climate protesters have alienated ordinary people because they are rich, middle-class oiks. I am most certainly not rich. I was born and brought up in a working-class area of Glasgow. I am most certainly not an oik. I have been, and still am, alienated by people who have no respect for the planet whatsoever, who have never taken any interest in what we do with the rubbish left over from overconsumption by a consumer society that does not care who dies in the production of the things we don't need and insist on buying. All people out there who took no notice of Sir David Attenborough's nature documentaries Rachel Carson's book on the damage done to people, animals, insects, plants, oceans and much more. For at least 60 years the warnings have been in newspapers, television, radio, magazines and you refuse to listen. There are hundreds of environmental pressure information groups who have been telling the same story for the same amount of time. Now you are all saying we are going too far because we were trying to shut down the centre of London to bring attention to the fact that if we don't stop destroying the planet, we are up a certain creek without a paddle. I am alienated. What are you going to do about it? Margaret Forbes, Kilmacombe. Good training brings better life for gun dogs. I note with interest the article by Mark Smith, End the Cruelty Inflicted on Dogs in the Name of Shooting, the Herald, October 24. While no doubt there are dog trainers who train in a very harsh manner, and I say dog trainers, not gun dog trainers, as in all professions and disciplines, there are those who are very good and those who are not so good. The tone of the article is very much that these are in the majority of the profession rather than the minority. 
In the 20 years or so that I've been working with dogs, I have seen a massive change in the approach to training, and especially in the approach to training gun dogs. There is more compassion and balance in training than ever before, as trainers are working to understand and enhance the dog's natural drive and enthusiasm to retrieve. I started running gun dog training classes due to the number of gun dogs I saw in a home environment that had developed behavioral issues due to a lack of stimulation, exercise and training. Dogs that were bored and dogs that were becoming destructive and aggressive. Introducing them to the type of activities they were bred to do allowed them to channel their energy, leading to a more fulfilled life for the dogs as their needs were met and a happier, less stressful home life for the family. Regardless of whether a gun dog is from working lines or not, whether it's a pedigree or a gun dog cross, at some point it was bred to do a job and a dog that has a working mentality needs to be using it. I would hate for this article to put people off training their pet gun dog. There are lots of amazingly kind, empathetic and passionate trainers out there that can make life so much better for you and your dog. Trainers that are experienced, are qualified and through sensible motivational training can help you transform your relationship with your dog. Les Graham Carluc. This is not justice. Following seven years hold up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, Julian Assange is serving his 50-week sentence for breaking bail. He is in virtual solitary confinement in the high-security jail at Belmarsh, denied normal contact with fellow prisoners and many normal prison facilities. He remains under threat of extradition to the United States and is in poor health, looking more like 67 than his 47 years. It is a sad commentary upon British justice that this brutal punishment is meted out to a journalist who dared to challenge the American deep state and its Westminster poodle. But it is even more disgraceful the National Union of Journalists with its 35,000 members and former Chairman and Secretary Jeremy Corbyn have both chosen to quietly sit on their thumbs rather than marshal support to end this inhuman treatment. It saddens me so many people in the United Kingdom quietly tolerate such medieval behaviour from their governing establishment. Perhaps it is time for Scotland to leave this rather unsavoury union and think about a written constitution to protect its own citizens from such undemocratic and inhuman excess. R.F. Millig, Helensborough. Culture Shock. Nicola Sturgeon says EU citizens will always be welcome in Scotland. I was talking to a Polish gentleman recently. He loves living in Scotland, but is sometimes made to feel unwelcome by the Scottish government's hostility towards his values. 
and particularly he finds that at school, his children are taught to reject many key teachings of his Christian faith. If the SNP really wants to be welcoming, it needs to show more respect for diversity. The government should encourage newcomers to embrace Scottish identity and culture, but should not seek to force them into the SNP's mould of secular liberal progressivism. Richard Lucas, leader of the Scottish Family Party, Glasgow G2. Time we realised poor mental health is not properly addressed by antidepressants. The levels of mental health problems in Scotland is now extremely concerning at about one in three of adults and children. Not long ago, it was one in four. The most common problem is depression, which is no surprise considering the levels of poverty, anxieties about losing jobs, work stress, climate change, drug deaths, and of course Brexit. For children, much of the anxiety and depression is associated with body image and bullying. Addiction to screen time on their phones generates its own anxieties. Some are viewing them five hours a day and suffering sleep deprivation. For too many of us, self-medicating on alcohol, nicotine, illicit drugs and over-the-counter medication has made our mental health many times worse. There is a presumption by too many of us there are pills to solve any problem, physical or mental. Hard-pressed NHS workers and GPs too quickly resort to writing prescriptions for antidepressants because they have neither the time nor alternative resources to offer any other solutions such as counselling, access to psychologists and the likes. Antidepressant prescriptions soar by 48% to almost a million in 10 years, said the Herald on October 23. The real scandal in all of this is that, as has been known for decades, antidepressants are not the solution. They cost the NHS a fortune, only work for a tiny number of people, and are highly addictive. People become trapped in years of misery when they discover they don't work. We have been conned into believing depression is caused by chemical imbalances in our brains that pills can solve. This is a cruel lie, because as any medic knows, there is no known way of testing if the human brain has a chemical deficiency. So if we cannot establish the level of a chemical deficiency, how can they prescribe the correcting dose of that chemical? The answer is they cannot. Our mental health services have been driven for decades by big pharma producing expensive drugs to solve depression. That industry knows only too well that antidepressants do not work. 
So now it has given up spending any of its massive profits in research on this. However, the companies are always happy to sell useless antidepressants to meet the ever-growing demand. Modern, better-trained and enlightened psychiatrists and mental health workers are well aware the most common cause of depression is our ignorance of the fact most of us do not understand how our minds work. We are overwhelmed by anxieties from much that is going on in our minds and need to learn to understand what are the real causes of our misery and what we ourselves can start to do to address it. Access to clinical psychologists, cognitive behavioural practitioners, mindfulness teachers, and anything that empowers us to learn about our mental health and how to resolve it is the answer, not useless antidepressants. Max Cruikshank, Glasgow, G12. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Usma Mir, England's disrespect for the Hakka sends out all the wrong signals. Construction industry facing new challenges. Brexit 50p coins to be shredded and melted down by Royal Mint. Celtic hold emergency talks with Lazio and UEFA and Alan McGregor a semi-final doubt. Hockey wins as the deal and hits out at Apprentice Levy. Jeremy Corbyn insists he is not in favour of another Scottish independence referendum. McInnes under pressure. Theatre. Prism. Kings. Edinburgh. Four stars. Letters. Let a general election be fought as Remain versus Revoke. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. You are listening to the Herald Scotland as published on Thursday 31st October 2019 News. Usma Mir, England's disrespect for the Hakka, sends out all the wrong signals. I'm sure if I had been watching England's rugby team face off the All Blacks Hakka this week at any other time other than the present, the sight of the captain's smirk and hands-on hips defiance would have passed me by. But there were something about it, and I'm not exactly sure what it was that made the blood run a bit cooler than usual. Was it that the response apparently pre-planned with one upmanship at its heart felt disrespectful to this ancient ritual? Maybe it's because I love a good haka and everything it stands for. 
the fact that it's a part of indigenous Maori culture, which has been embraced by all races in New Zealand, makes it a special and unique tradition to be celebrated and admired. Recently, when a friend's 22-year-old son was leaving a New Zealand school after coaching rugby there for a year, I confessed to shedding a wee tear as she showed me video of the hundred or so multiracial students performing the haka as a mark of respect for their coach. It is moving and fierce, powerful and evocative, hypnotic and surprising all at the same time. It's an ancient tradition that has survived the inexorable push towards the homogeneity of Hollywood culture. For that, I think it deserves a little respect, not smirking, rule-breaking, or attempts to drown it out with renditions of swing low, swing chariot. Of course, there's an argument to say that the aim was not to disrespect. I mean, we all make mistakes when it comes to others' culture, rituals, and customs, when we simply don't know what is expected of us. It's no biggie, as my kids would say. I have a litany of experience of this. One episode stands out. A few years ago, a Muslim cousin of mine got married to a Sikh. Although the families originated from within 10 miles of one another on the Indian subcontinent, neither had read the non-existent copy of a very handy guide to wedding rituals. The result was a standoff outside a Scottish country house on the one baking hot day of 2010 that lasted for a painful 25 minutes as neither side knew what they should do. A standoff so scary it put the Soviet-American standoff at Checkpoint Charlie in 1961 to shame. We just had no idea what each other's rituals were. Do we shake hands? Exchange gifts? We had garlands, but who was to put it on home? And it seems I'm not alone in my experience of faux pas when it comes to rituals. A Jewish friend recently told me of a function at a synagogue where the different types of food on the table were carefully chosen to signify certain elements of the past. A soft and gooey food called karoset signified the cement used by the Jewish slaves in building and bowls of salted water signified the tears and sweat of those slaves. Just as one man was about to drink the much-respected salted water, a non-Jewish visitor plunged his hands into the bowl and started vigorously washing them. I'm telling you this now, so no excuses in the future. Maybe it's the disregard for the rules by the team that's ripping any knitting. Few and certainly, it seems, not even the all-black themselves argue that a response to the haka is not acceptable. But it's the disregard for authority, the we know better than officialdom, which smacks of something more potentially worrying. World rugby regulations insist that opponents must stay in their half when the haka is being performed. Some of the England team entered the other half, 
But yet, even with officials shouting at them to get back, they continued to do so. Their fans lapped it up. England won. So perhaps the means justified the glorious end. But is that really a justification for breaking rules? Most of us teach our kids to obey the rules at home, in school, on the sports field. It's part of growing up, being aware of a kind of social contract between us all in game play. Elite sportsmen and women are role models for millions of young people and children to keep sport respected in this way. The governing bodies have to formulate rules which can't be seen to be ignored. By flouting the rules and the subsequent validation of the rule breaking by fans and pundits alike afterwards, did the English team tap into zeitgeisty thing we are seeing a lot more of at the moment. £2,000 is thought to be the cost to the team, an insignificant loss for making their V-shaped point. So yes, all those stuff happens, the response of the England team was no mistake. It was pre-mediated and for me showed a lack of respect to the ancient tradition. But hey, what do I know? I'm just a woman still traumatized by being in a face-off nine years ago between 15 Glaswegian Muslims and 23 Sikhs from Gravesend. Now, if one or both sides had started doing the haka, that would have been interesting. The article by Uzma Mir, England's disrespect for the haka's sends out all the wrong signals. The Herald, Monday, October 28th. The Agenda Column, a column for outside contributors. And today is from Heather Holbrook, Regional Director, Thomas and Adamson. Construction industry facing new challenges. At the start of this month, Scotland ushered in a new wave of building regulations aimed at improving the safety provision of the country's construction sector. Announced in the aftermath of the Grenfell tragedy, the Building Scotland Amendment Regulations 2019 provide a crucial step towards ensuring the continued safety of Scotland's domestic and non-domestic properties by placing greater emphasis on fire safety and minimising the chances of a similar tragedy reoccurring in the future. This applies to any individual or business undertaking, either new builds or refurbishments involving a change of use or material. This essentially means builders operating in Scotland must now source any insulation and cladding materials required for their build developments from compliance suppliers. There's no denying these regulations are an extremely positive step towards helping to protect people from a similar tragedy that spawned them into being. However, they don't come without their challenges. Compliant products and materials are currently in short demand due to the lack of alternatives being openly available on the market. Furthermore, the industry is faced with competing suppliers reviewing and revisiting their product specifications to comply with the new regulations, 
an onerous and time-consuming process. As a result, we expect there to be a niche market resulting in material lead-in times and costs increasing, which contractors will need to factor into current projects to try and avoid delays and budget disputes. Taken in isolation, it may only be a limited knock-on impact to contractors. But when combined with the uncertainty caused by Brexit, the consequences may be more severe than expected, both in terms of cost and time frame in sourcing materials. As with nearly every sector in Scotland, a no-deal Brexit could also greatly impact our industry's supply chain. One such example is importing timber. As the second biggest importer of timber products in the world, and with two-thirds currently sourced from within the European Union, the UK and Scotland will be in a precarious position should it leave without securing a deal. Not only is there real fear the cost of importing timber will surge, in tandem to the cost of compliant insulation and cladding, another chief concern is enhanced duties and the wider question marks around other potential quotas and increased red tape. This will put large parts of the industry under further strain. Secondly, the procurement and supply chain are other areas that the building regulations and Brexit may fundamentally impact. Currently, construction firms rely on just-in-time fulfilment, which means most materials can be sourced within a tight timescale. Loss of access to the single market and complex restrictions on cladding and insulation may cause shortages in importing essential resources, meaning that this may not be possible in the future. Historically in Scotland, you do not pay for materials until they are included into the works, but this will most likely have to change, and we may have to migrate to a forward fund model, which will undoubtedly cause issues. This will also involve a host of other legal, storage and double handling cost issues that will need to be resolved. Despite Scotland's property market being buoyed by several new multi-billion pound projects, such as Scotland Excel 1.5 billion pound new build housing framework, the industry needs to adapt quickly to these changes to ensure minimal disruption to planned or future developments. It may mean short-term disruption, but it will ultimately demonstrate that Scotland leads the way in delivering safe, compliant construction projects to both individuals and investors. And this is the view of Heather Halsbrook, Regional Director Thompson, Thomas and Adamson, in this the agenda column, a column for outside contributors. Brexit 50p coins to be shredded and melted down by Royal Mint. 
an article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 29th of October 2019. Limited edition Brexit 50p coins, dated October the 31st 2019, are set to be shredded and melted down after UK's departure from the EU was delayed by three months. The special coins were originally designed to be minted in time for Britain leaving the trading block this Friday. However, today the Treasury confirmed these coins would be recycled now that the EU has agreed a Brexit extension with the UK government. Uh, an HM Treasury spokesman said, We will still produce a coin to mark our departure from the European Union and this will enter circulation after we have left. According to the Royal Mint website, precious metals such as 50p coins are sorted and shredded before being melted down. Metals are then purified and solidified before being turned into new products. The cost of designing and producing the commemorative coins will be met by the Royal Mint out of its own revenues at no cost to the taxpayer. Chancellor Sajid Javid had asked officials to look at whether it would be possible to produce the coins in volume ready for the UK's scheduled EU leaving date of October the 31st. Former Chancellor Philip Hammond had planned a limited edition of around 10,000 commemorative coins to be sold to collectors for £10 each. Mr Javid's revised the proposal for the coins to be produced for mass circulation. This was portrayed as a statement of intent that the Treasury was fully behind Brexit. The coins will carry the words friendship with all nations but will be stamped with a new departure date currently set to be January the 31st, 2020. You're listening to Herald Scotland as published on Thursday the 31st of October 2019. Sport. Celtic hold emergency talks with Lazio and UEFA and Alan McGregor a semi-final doubt by James Kearney, sports writer. Celtic captain Scott Brown could miss out on Saturday's League Cup semi-final against Hibernian. Alan McGregor is a doubt for Rangers fixture against Hearts on Sunday and Craig Levine has told supporters that no one wants Hearts to improve more than him. Injury concern for Brown. Scott Brown could be forced to sit out this weekend's League Cup semi-final after the Celtic captain came off with a thigh injury during his side's 2-0 win over St Mirren last night. Celtic manager Neil Rennan said, We'll have to wait and see how it settles overnight, but we're hoping he will be OK. It's not like him to come off, so he obviously felt something there. Lennon admits Bale could be out for six weeks. Celtic striker Bale could be out for up to six weeks, Neil Lennon has admitted. The Ivorian forward could require knee surgery that would result in an extended spell on the sidelines. McGregor in semi-final sweat. Rangers goalkeeper Alan McGregor missed last night's 4-0 win at Ross County due to injury and is a doubt for Sunday's League Cup semi-final against Hearts. According to Stephen, according to Stephen Gerrard, he told the Scottish Sun, He tried it yesterday. He was still in some pain, so he done the sensible thing. You can't take any risks with your goalkeeper. Celtic hold emergency talks ahead of Europa League fixture. Celtic have held emergency talks with Lazio and UEFA ahead of the club's fixture in Italy next week, according to the Daily Mail. Around 9,000 Celtic fans are expected to make the trip amid concerns that there could be clashes between the two sets of supporters. Levine. I don't mind supporters venting their frustration. 
Hearts manager Craig Levine, who watched his side lose 1-0 to St Johnson at Maidermid Park last night, admits that he understands supporters' frustration with recent results, but insisted that he is the man to take the club forward. Levine told the Scottish Sun, I understand the frustration of supporters. Nobody wants to win games more than I do. Nobody has more of a vested interest in winning than I do. Lennon hails Priceless Forest. Following last night's 2-0 win over St Mirren, Neil Lennon has played tribute to Celtic winger James Forrest, who got on the score sheet last night. We gave him a new deal, and I don't care how much money we pay, he's priceless to me, Lennon said. What would he cost? A goal-scoring winger who has been doing it consistently for 10 years and won treble player of the year awards. Kilmarnock will appeal Bruce Red, says Alessio. Kilmarnock manager Angelo Alessio is adamant that referee Don Robertson made an error when sending off Alex Bruce in last night's 2-1 defeat at Fir Park and will appeal the decision. Alessio said, It was a good tackle. It wasn't a free kick or sending off. Bruce took the ball. It was very clear. Gerard Ryan Jack is a proper leader. After his two-goal display in Dingwall, Ryan Jack has been hailed as a proper leader by Rangers manager Stephen Gerrard. He said, It was a performance of a proper leader and with his two finishes... He is adding that to his game as well. He has come on leaps and bounds and just needs to keep going. You've been listening to The Bulletin. Celtic hold emergency talks with Lazio and UEFA and Alan McGregor, a semi-final doubt, by James Kearney, sports writer. Article from Herald Scotland, Tuesday 29th of October 2019, Business. Hockey wins as the deal and hits out at Apprentice Levy, by Scott Wright, Deputy Business Editor. City Facilities Management Holdings has renewed its contract with ASDA as founder Lord Willie Hockey railed against the government apprenticeship levy. The firm secured a new long-term deal with the supermarket giant to build on the partnership it has enjoyed with the Walmart-owned retailer since 1997, which has been a cornerstone of its continuing growth in the UK. It will see Gorbals-based City provide ASDA with a broad range of facilities management services including electrical, fabric and building maintenance, energy management and cleaning. The ASDA deal was unveiled shortly after Lord Hockey used a speech at a Glasgow business event to launch a stinging attack on the apprenticeship levy. The Labour peer said the levy was one of the worst things in the country telling an audience of Glasgow Chamber of Commerce members that once the madness of Brexit stops, I'm going to fight to take it away. The levy is applied to businesses with an annual payroll of £3 million or more, with employees able in turn to draw on funding to support staff training. But speaking on the sidelines of the event, Lord Hockey said it actually discourages employers from taking apprentices on because the funding it gives for training is limited. He said... In the small print of the apprenticeship levy, when they say you can get money back, they are only willing to give you money back for the day that the apprentice is in education or is at college. The other four days of the week, they don't see that, but we can't charge anybody. Most people who are paying for an apprentice now are not being able to recoup that money. I'm saying to the government, when you are an apprentice, your whole week is training. You are either getting theory at college one day or you are getting practical for four days from a time-served engineer. You learn more in those four days than one day at college, so why should I not get my money back to pay for it? I'm sad to say, because of it, I now have less apprentices. He added, nobody has said this is a good idea, but we can't get talking about it because of Brexit. This is the problem. We can't get to the big issues. 
On the ASDA deal, Lord Hockey said, I am thrilled that we will continue to build on the success of the last two decades in our continued partnership with ASDA. Our trusted relationship is testament to the hard work and dedication of our colleagues over the years, and I am incredibly proud of what our teams have achieved in driving service and savings across the estate. I very much look forward to developing new and innovative solutions to further grow our partnership in the future. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday the 31st of October 2019. News. Jeremy Corbyn insists he is not in favour of another Scottish independence referendum. Jeremy Corbyn has insisted he is not in favour of another referendum on Scottish independence anytime soon. The Labour leader's comments come after the Shadow Transport Secretary Andy MacDonald said the party would not stand in the way of a second poll. Mr Corbyn said the first several years of a Labour government would see £70 billion invested into Scotland. At a later stage, obviously under the terms of devolution, if the Scottish Parliament demands it, then there could be, at a much later stage, a referendum. I make it very clear we are against Scottish independence and we are certainly not in favour of any referendum in Scotland any time soon. Mr Corby made the comments on a visit to Crawley Hospital alongside Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth as the party gears up for the December general election. Mr Macdonald told the BBC on Wednesday that while his party did not want Scotland to split from the rest of the UK, they would not stand in the way of a second independence referendum. Jeremy Corbyn insists he is not in favour of another Scottish independence referendum by Herald Scotland Online. The Herald, Monday, October 28th. Sport, football. McInnes under pressure. The disappointing form shown by Aberdeen in the opening weeks of the season was, with some justification, attributed to their lengthy injury list, which their manager Derek McInnes had to contend with. The absence of Andrew Considine, Scott McKenna and Ash Taylor at the back saw the Pitaudry club struggle. They may have been without Lewis Ferguson, Curtis Main, Funzo Ojo and Taylor once again yesterday in their four-goal defeat by Celtic but McKenna and Considine are both back. And McInnes once again fielded Greg Lee and Zach Viner, two defenders, in central midfield. So the ease with which their opponents went four ahead in the opening 45 minutes was inexcusable. Mikey Devlin was dreadful. McKenna not a great deal better. It was depressing to think these are two of the players who are contenders for the problematic centre-half position with Scotland. Their teammates, though, 
have little chance of ever gaining international recognition if they continue to perform like this. But it is McInnes who must take responsibility for this heavy reverse. His side could, it should not be forgotten, have gone third in the premiership table if they had triumphed. But the unhappiness with the man in charge is growing in the northeast. It was certainly hard to remember so many Aberdeen fans leaving a game so early. They were heading for the exits in droves long before the half-time whistle blew. You couldn't blame them. Any more off days like this and there will be calls for the manager to be replaced. McInnes himself admitted that Aberdeen deserved to lose heavily and apologised to the Pitodri supporters for how poorly his men had had acquitted themselves. We were awful, he said. After losing the first goal, we lacked personality and determination. I felt every time the ball went in our box, it was a goal to Celtic. The first goal is awful, just awful. Edward ambled through. The lack of determination to stop it happening was poor. We lost confidence from there. I don't expect to lose like this. I expect us to let Celtic know we are there. Celtic eased up in the second half as the job was done. We can't take Celtic on in a possession-based game, but we can let them know they are in a game. That was a disappointment. I was astonished at the defending and the goals we lost. It was painful. I can only apologise to our supporters. They deserve better than that. I think I deserve better than that. Theatre. Prism. Kings. Edinburgh. Four stars. An article by Neil Cooper, theatre critic, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 29th of October 2019. Life, says iconic filmmaker Jack Cardiff in Terry Johnson's play, is temporary. Film is forever. So it is in this loving reimagining of the final days of the cinematographer behind the African Queen, the Red Shoes and a lot more besides. Johnson put Cardiff in the garage of his Buckinghamshire home, a space lined with portraits of the actresses he lit with such translucent wonder alongside some of the equipment he used to make it happen. Now, in the throes of Alzheimer's, Jack's son, Mason, has surrounded his father with totems of his adventures in the screen trade to help nudge out his memoirs. Also on board is his young carer, Lucy, while he can't help but mistake his wife, Nicola, for Catherine Hepburn. Out of this comes a gentle elegy for an artist who spent most of his life in make-believe worlds and who here goes beyond the seeming befuddlement of age to take a peek into a rich imaginative life that keeps him holding on. We don't just get to see Hepburn, but Marlon Monroe and then her husband Arthur Miller too. As Cardiff himself observes early on, stepping into designer Tim Shortall's elaborately decorated garage that doubles up as a film set 
is a bit like taking a tour of Cardiff's mind, where all the studio rushes flicker into bittersweet life. First seen at Hampstead Theatre, and now on tour in co-production with Birmingham Rep, Johnson's own production flits between fantasy and reality, enabled by Ian Galloway's video design. It draws out fine performances from Tara Fitzgerald as a resigned Nicola, Oliver Himbra as Mason and Victoria Blunt as Lucy, who first enables Jack to leap down his celluloid rabbit hole. While all three vamp it up beyond their main characters as stars of the silver screen, it is Robert Lindsay as Cardiff who gives the play its heart. Lindsay's portrayal is a moving one, laced with a knowing wit, intelligence and experience that suggests whatever world Cardiff is in, the light shines on. Article from Herald Scotland, 29th of October 2019. Opinion. Letters. Let a general election be fought as Remain versus Revoke. I think it is time that all Remainers, instead of railing against the fence-sitting of the Labour Party and ridiculing the presidential antics of Boris Johnson and his minions, need to start actually saying why we want to be part of the EU. We feel this way for various reasons. The young who voted overwhelmingly to remain did so because they are internationally minded, have come into contact with European students at college, have travelled more and are far more open-minded than their seniors. Older Remainers have a historical perspective which says to them that after the 20th century wars, we want Europe to be together. Middle-aged folks simply think it is daft to be a small economic unit in the face of America and China, to name but two. Marching for a second referendum is great, and I hope it succeeds. But it looks like we are coming up to an election, and it needs to be a Brexit versus revoke election, a substitute for a referendum. It does not want to be an obfuscated Labour election, talking about nationalisation and the like, nor does it need to be a Tory giveaway to the well-off election. It needs to be an election about leaving the EU or remaining in the EU. John Cruikshank, Whiting Bay, Isle of Arran. As in Scotland, the people rather than Parliament are considered to be sovereign, and as a general election in December seems increasingly likely, to minimise endless post-election divisive argument, can the impact or influence of the Scottish electorate on any demand for IndyRef2 in that election be agreed in advance? The SNP and the Greens will stand on manifestos committed to seeking IndyRef2, and the SNP is expected to return the most MPs from Scotland. What happens if in Scotland those parties with manifestos opposed to IndyRef2 poll more votes in total than the total of those parties in favour of IndyRef2? Should that, rather than the number of MPs returned for particular parties, be taken as the true expression of the sovereign will of the Scottish people, thus removing any justification for IndyRef2, and of course vice versa if there are more votes in total for the parties seeking IndyRef2? Alan Fitzpatrick, Dunlop. David Williamson, Letters, October 28th, believes that the Scottish Tory MPs are acting dutifully in supporting Brexit. 
I think his view is questionable on various grounds. First, the referendum on EU membership was advisory only, not binding. The government was not obliged to shape its policy on the referendum result. And on any showing, the idea of initiating as massive a constitutional change as departure from the EU on the strength of a wafer-thin majority vote was absurd. In a parallel universe, a sensible government would have responded to the referendum results by conducting a serious and academically respectable investigation into the various forms a Brexit might take and the likely results of each of them, and putting the findings before the electorate before even initiating the process of leaving the EU. It is nobody's duty to support a misguided and mishandled policy that can only lead to disaster. Secondly, it is surely a first principle of parliamentary democracy that members are elected to serve their constituencies. Every one of our Tory MPs is going directly against the majority of the voters they represent in their sheep-like obedience to their party line, hardly an example of democracy in action. However, this issue is really academic, since none of the MPs in question is likely to remain in office beyond the forthcoming election. Derek McClure, Aberdeen. AB24. Yet another extension and delay to the farcical Brexit saga, this time to January the 31st, 2020. The rest of the world must be looking on in astonishment at the ineptitude of our democratic institutions and conclude that we are a complete basket case. The whole mess could have been settled once and for all by the end of this month if the EU had just acted as requested to by the PM and refused to change the October deadline. This would have resulted in Parliament having to vote the new deal through, leave without a deal or rescind Article 50, thus remaining in the EU. Unless a complete zealot one way or the other, I'm sure the majority of the electorate, especially the business community, are so fed up with the whole business that they just want it finalised without further dithering by our so-called politicians, who as a group surely must be the worst privileged bunch to have occupied the green benches. As it is, on and on it goes, and as the end of January approaches, yet another extension could be requested and granted, and so the spiral of uncertainty continues. James Martin, Bearsden. Is anyone keeping count of the number of times our Prime Minister has had a photo opportunity in a primary school? I speculate that this is because he knows he won't be asked any awkward questions. But it is that generation who will miss out on the opportunities and security that the EU has provided to mine. Willie Towers, Alford. As John Dunn might have put it when faced with a disastrous future, Brexit done, Britain undone. J. McCall, Glasgow, G43. Having surveyed many ditches around Kilmacombe, I am in a unique position to advise Boris Johnson which one to choose on Wednesday. Dave Bigot, Kilmacombe. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland.